The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hey, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Brian Sullivan. Here's what's ahead. Chips, they are front and center. Key events for NVIDIA and Intel today. Let's start with NVIDIA. Maybe the most important stock in the world, consistently surprising investors every quarter, and it's been printing money for them. But can the company keep that going with competition growing? We'll talk about it. Then there's Intel. Can it compete with NVIDIA? Does it even want to? Your guest says yes, and we'll explain why. Plus, Intel CEO will join you live in just a few minutes. Bottom line, everybody, it is a big show, big earnings tonight. And while we wait for that big live interview, let's go now to Dominic Chu, who's got more on chips, NVIDIA's foothold in the space to date, and, of course, your overall money and markets, Dom. Well, you mentioned this idea that is, is NVIDIA the most important stock in the world? It's the, you know, traders and investors at Goldman Sachs who kind of told clients that, yes, it is the most important stock in the world out there. But there's a reason why. Because if you look at the overall picture, I've put the orange line in here as the NASDAQ 100 ETF QQQ over the last year, up 44%. And we already know it's more than tripled for NVIDIA, up 225%. But just look over the course of the last maybe couple of months here, and specifically in 2024, where NVIDIA has ramped up massively, so much so that NVIDIA's star performance over the course of this just year-to-date period represents a little over a third of the entire performance of the QQQ or NASDAQ 100. That's how important NVIDIA is to the overall narrative, especially to the NASDAQ 100. Now, let's drill a little bit further into just what the analysts are saying about this. First of all, a lot of folks are already very bullish about it. And just consensus-wise, we're talking about all the analysts that FactSet tracks that look at NVIDIA, 93% of them have a buy or equivalent overweight type rating. There are 7% that say hold or neutral. There are no sells tracked by them, by the way. And the average target price is $752, which is around 10% upside from current levels. Now, let's talk about how the trading is going to set up right now. We mentioned just how volatile things can be. Well, over the last eight quarters that NVIDIA has reported, there have been five up days and three down ones. The average move, by the way, post earnings for NVIDIA stock is up or down roughly seven and a half percent. So fairly volatile options markets right now are pricing in what could be a plus or minus 10 percent move in the shares. So more volatile than average. And by the way, at a one point six seven trillion dollar valuation, a 10% move, simple math, could equate into $167 billion worth of swing if those prices bear out the way that the prices are coming out right now. And just how much is $167, $170 billion? We'll take a look at this just for some context. The current market cap of Verizon is $170 billion. IBM, Big Blue, $168 billion, and Uber Technologies at $160. So, Brian, what we could see, hypothetically, if options prices play out, is a move to NVIDIA that adds or subtracts an entire company like one of these after earnings this afternoon. I'll send things back over to you. Uh, dare I say, Dom, that is random but interesting. Dom, RBIs, I love it. it it's fantastic. $170 billion. Holy smokes, Dom, thank you. 
going to steal that for tonight, by the way. All right, let's bring in somebody who knows what is at stake and who owns a stake in Intel. In fact, was a software engineer back in the day when technology and data weren't really ready for prime time and there was no such thing as a data center. Very different story, certainly, today. And now she is a professional investor. That is Boca Capital's Kim Forrest is back. Uh, Kim, let's start with NVIDIA. I, I mean, wow. The, the, I saw you nodding off to my left on the giant screen here. Big numbers around NVIDIA, their earnings, the options activity that Dom just laid out. How important is NVIDIA tonight? Well, Brian, I think numbers say it all. It's really, really important. But let's talk about why is this important. I think what the two questions that are being asked probably invisibly is first, is AI a real thing? Is generative AI the next internet, the next whatever, the next big tech experiment that's gonna change our lives? And the second thing is, well, maybe there's three. The second thing is, does NVIDIA like benefit from this, this quarter? And does that build out still continue? So those are the things that we're gonna hear about tonight. And who knows? Who knows any of these questions other than I'm going to put a stake in the ground and say, yeah, AI is a thing and it will be in five to 10 years incorporated in many ways in our life that we can't even imagine right now. Yeah. Uh, and would you agree that it is, if not the one of the most important stocks in the world? I mean, NVIDIA matters to NVIDIA, but it matters. It seems to matter to everything because they're the forefront of AI or one of. It's the big kahuna of stocks right now. You can't, um, you know, Dom laid out those, uh, just the fluctuations that are expected. And, you know, those are pretty reasonably sized companies. It is big and investors have made it big because it seems to be the only way right now that people can get a piece of investing in AI. But let's try to transition this. Is it the only thing? And will it be the only thing to be able to invest in AI? And I'm going to say, no, it's not. And it's going to be much more nuanced than we can imagine. And um, this is not the end of AI. If you haven't invested, if you're not a holder of NVIDIA, doesn't mean you're shut out of benefiting from investing in AI. All right, we've got we've got Intel and we got a live interview. Christina Parsonevelos is out west, has Pat Gelsinger here in a few minutes. Christina may be patched into the IFB right now. If you are, hi, Christina. Uh, bonjour. Uh, is there one or two specific questions that you would love to hear asked and answered from the Intel CEO as an investor? Yeah, I mean, like, what what's their plan for AI? Do they have people already signed up? I read a little bit of the press release that Intel put out, and things seem favorable, and timeline is important. What's the timeline for all of this? And I think those play into tonight's uh, NVIDIA results as well. There you go. Kim Forrest, Boca Capital. I know everybody's waiting with bated breath for tonight at 4 o'clock. Kim, thank you very much. All right, so we just mentioned it. Why don't we stop talking and get to it? Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger is with Christina out in San Jose, California. Christina, I'm going to sit here and let you take it away. Thank you, Brian. And yes, I did hear you. Pat, thank you so much for joining us today. Great job on stage. You have a lot oh, of thank you. big announcements. And I want to start with, uh, I guess, the big one, top in headlines, and that's signing Microsoft as a foundry customer. Does that mean that Microsoft's going to be using Intel's production for its homegrown chips and only Intel? Can you just provide more details on that relationship? Well, it's going to be vague. 
right? You know, Satya just said, hey, they've committed designs to 18A, and he didn't say if it was their designs or which different segment. So we're just happy to have them as yet another 18A customer, and he was willing to go public uh, with them as a customer of 18A, and it's adding to the growing list of foundry customers that we have for both wafers and for packaging technology. So it's also adding to your pipeline. So yes. your, uh, your Intel Foundry pipeline was originally 10 billion, you upped it to 15 billion. Yep. Can you just explain that $5 billion difference? Is that because of Microsoft, United Microelectronics, your Foundry partners, like what's driving that growth specifically? Especially when you've said on earnings calls that there's going to be no meaningful revenue growth uh, until 2025. Yeah, and you know, three things that we've, uh, getting from 10 to 15, you know, we announced the UMC partnership, which adds to the pipeline. We've now announced Microsoft as the next 18A customer, and we've also completed a number of additional packaging uh, customers as well, our advanced packaging foundry offerings as well. So those three have taken the pipeline up pretty substantially, and uh, so we've uh, updated the number to over 15 billion now. But the bulk of your revenue right now just comes from packaging, though. Not, and that's what we saw weakness, which impacted your quarter. That was some of the traditional packaging, Correct. but the pipeline is almost all around advanced packaging, some of these mature node relationships like the UMC and Tower partnership, but increasingly the modern nodes like 18A. So we see a very robust overall you know, pipeline of customers and our lifetime deal value, what we talked about now over $15 billion, we're starting to count. I'm gonna just make, a, I guess, a hard pivot for a second because it's topical. And it was your commentary about Ohio and the, the plant delays in Ohio. Can you just shed some light on that progress? Does that mean that you'll have to change your forward guidance because of those plant delays? So, you know, when you build a factory like this, it's really two phases. One is you construct this incredible building that takes multiple years and some of the most complex plumbing and chemistry and building and seismic that's done on any building on earth. And that has continued uninterrupted with no delays. So the building is underway. If you go to the site today, cranes and concrete trucks and so on, the then filling it with capacity when you put that expensive equipment in, that's pushed out a little bit given some of the market conditions. So, but we're continuing, get the building built and then we're gonna equip it and use it right, for production, depending on market conditions. And that'll be a little bit later than we initially expected when we announced the plans. What do you mean by market conditions, though? Well, when do I have foundry customers? What happens, you know, we're in a very tough economic cycle and you've seen, you know, us and many other companies say it's a little bit softer than we expected at this, uh, at this time. And these, when you equip the factories, you know, when we announced the site, it was over 20 billion, right? And about a third of that is the building. We're getting that done because that's this long lead time project, you know, pouring concrete, digging mm. holes, doing construction. And then the second phase, two thirds of the cost is in that phase. And then when you put that equipment in place, you've got to use it. You know, that's the only way the economics work for a semiconductor. So that phase, that second portion is the part that has delayed a little bit. Speaking of the economics, um, Chipsack funding. Pipeline. We know Global Foundries just received funding. You're, you're next. And I say that just because Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, took the stage. And yet Intel hasn't received any funding just yet. The March 7th State of the Union address by President Biden is coming up. I'm sure he's going to bring up Chipsack funding. You're chumming with him. He comes to your events. So when is this money coming for you? Well, we didn't make any announcements today, but we did say with the Secretary of Commerce very soon and we're making good progress. We're having lots of interactions with the Commerce Department 
uh, on that. You correctly point out there are some interesting days in the near future, and uh, you know as, as those progress. But you know, overall, I just say we are making good progress here. It's a super important initiative, and as we talked about chips and the need for this rebuilding, the fundamental industrial policy of our nation, you know, has made the biggest step forward. As uh, Gina said this morning, uh, Secretary Romano said this morning, you know, maybe in 60 years. I've said maybe since World War II. This is profound. It's a very big deal. And we're quite happy to be a participant in that process, both personally and as a company. You're talking about progress. The goal, and you've had it in all of your marketing materials, is to be the number two foundry, the world's number two foundry by 2030. But if a customer is going to pick between Intel and TSMC, what are they picking? What are the reasons for that choice? Is it price? Is it availability? Is it dynamics that I'm unaware of? Why pick Intel? Well, you know, there's at least four or five reasons. One is we call ourselves a systems foundry. We have the most advanced packaging and leadership wafer technology. So that packaging technology. But doesn't, doesn't TSMC have that as well? Oh, we are way ahead of the industry in packaging technology, and that's part of the surge of interest that we've had and part of our deal pipeline, as we've said. This lifetime deal value going up has been because of advanced packaging. We also say we're going to help them build the best products. And 18A is now a leadership technology again. And I announced today what's next. Two years later, we're going to have 14A, yes. you know, the next leadership technology, so the best way for But we also said Intel is uniquely a resilient supply chain. We operate our manufacturings across US, Europe, and Asia. So we are a more resilient choice. We're also a more sustainable choice. We are miles ahead of the industry in sustainability, water use, energy mm -hmm. use, chemicals at that, and finally, a trusted supply chain, you know, particularly for the large preponderance of US-based fabulous companies. Trusted, secure, leadership technology, systems capabilities. Yeah, we have a, a very powerful capability to bring to the industry. So if you're gonna take that capability and translate it into revenue dollars, in, at your analyst day in 2022, you said 120 billion by 2026. Has that number changed? And really what's driving that number, if you're talking about weaker macro uh, scenarios that are impacting, let's say, the Ohio plant, a foundry that could take a little while to see meaningful revenue. So how are you getting to that 120? Well, I believe that's going to take us a little while longer. Okay, so beyond overall, 2026 then. Yeah, but overall the vision is the same. We are building a substantial foundry business over time, and that's ramping up in today's event. Uh, demonstrates the energy that we saw, you know, sellout crowd, yes. way more than we expected here. You know, and these are just like the geeks of geek, uh, uber geeks who <laughs> love transistors, the Rembrandts of what I do for a living. But it's also then, you know, continuing, you know, to build great products. And right. Intel is uniquely, as I'd say, we get to participate in 100% of the AI TAM as both the foundry and to deliver the best products as well. So both of those, hey, I want to be the foundry for every AI company in the world, using our packaging, using our wafers, scaling those massive investments in Ohio, Arizona, Oregon, New yeah. Mexico, and overseas, and doing it with great products as well. And I'll end on that note. Pat, thank you for joining us. Brian, back over to you. Christina, great stuff. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, uh, Kim Forrest, you've been listening to this. You're an Intel investor. What are your thoughts? What are your takeaways? Well, I'm pretty happy um, overall. We'll get to why I'm not happy on the second part, but the first part, what am I happy about? I'm happy that this validates my investment thesis. And 
I'm a risk reducer, even though I love technology. And why is Intel a little bit less risky than NVIDIA? Well, they have a broad spectrum of products, and now they're becoming a foundry. And it seems like their foundry aspirations are well on their way, not just building, but getting buy-in from um, you know, other chip makers, other chip designers. So I'm thrilled about that. The extended timeline, I'm not so thrilled about, but my old cell site analyst uh, hat goes on, and I think about, hmm, maybe he's just setting a low bar right now, which is a good thing, because there's a whole lot of moving parts in this foundry and uh, being a semiconductor, creating your own chips as well. So there's a lot of moving parts. It looks like Pat is the guy to move them through this process, and I'm pretty happy overall. You know, it's kind of amazing. Christina's point about the CHIPS Act, okay? Uh, big bill, a lot of money. It's being touted, I, and I'm not trying to drag politics into it, it's being touted as this big win, but Intel has not seen a, a dime yet. It's a big part of the thesis. Ohio was delayed as an investor. If the money even takes longer or maybe never materializes for whatever reason, does that change your view on Intel at all? Not particularly. Um, I think the risk of them not getting any money is extremely low, especially as the Commerce Secretary, you know, was attended and presented at their conference. So I'd say that's very low. And I think it's um, probably they tipped their hand by showing up there. I don't think it's a huge part of this, but it's a nice, you know, we'll take free money any way we can get it. Although, we are taxpayers, so is it really free? I'm thinking not. But again, um, Intel has successfully gotten um, uh, money like this from other countries. I believe Germany has uh, you know, given them some money for building a plant over there as well. Yeah. And I just think this is the way of the world right now as we try to um, move the supply chain away from Taiwan. Yeah, something we need to do for a lot of reasons. National security is key among them. Let's hope the money eventually does materialize. Kim Forrest, Boca Capital. Kim, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank all right, you. while that was all happening, we just had a bunch of 20-year bonds go up for auction. And as Professor Santelli is here to tell you, I don't think it went very well at all. No, this is the 45th auction of 20-year bonds brought back in May of 2020. Today, we had 16.16 billion of them hit the auction block about 15 minutes ago, and it was not pretty. As a matter of fact, grade D minus. D minus Y? Well, this is easy. Bid to cover, weakest since August of 22. Indirect bidders, weakest since May of 21. The dealers took the most since March of 21. And if you look at yields, they're up about eight basis points in twos since the auction, hovering at 465, which means we're one basis point away from the high yield close of 2024 in twos, which is 466. In tens, they're up about six basis points since the auction ended at one Eastern. They're at 431. 431 is currently the high yield close for 2024 for tens. Equities dropped, but they've made a bit of a comeback. Listen, I understand equities could avoid putting too much credence on a 20-year auction. 20-year auctions are kind of the three-legged bar stool of the treasury curve. 
However, it's still symptomatic of the weakness, and it's a big day. Globally, $314 trillion of global debt, a new milestone. Brian. Back to you. It's a new. It's not one of those good kind of milestones. I don't think Rick Santelli. Rick, thank you. All right, on deck. We are talking travel with the CEO of Travel and Leisure. Plus, get your electric motors running. Rivian and Lucid on deck to release their numbers tonight. We'll have a deep dive with full team coverage from China to Europe and the Americas. That's next. This is the Exchange on CNBC. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. Let's talk travel, because Travel and Leisure is the world's largest vacation ownership company. They've got resorts across America, the Virgin Islands, and more. And they are still seeing some very positive trends from the consumer and travel. The question is, how long can that go on? Joining us now is Travel and Leisure president and CEO, Mike Brown. Mike, thanks for joining us. Listen, you guys do Wisconsin Dells. You've got Ski. You've got Virgin Islands. Your numbers were good. Revenue guidance was a little disappointing to the market. How do you see the consumer now? There's a lot of talk about a slowdown. It does not appear that this consumer slowdown has occurred. What are you seeing? Well, I would agree with you. It hasn't occurred. As we look into our forward bookings, we're seeing for the first part of the year, 5% year-on-year growth at our resorts as far as arrivals and room nights. That's a very positive sign. And what we saw in 2022 was revenge travel. 2023, people tended to go abroad. And given that 90% of our resorts are in North America, we're really expecting to see a return to domestic travel. And we're already seeing it the first half of this year. Our number one demanded destination is Florida. And I'd expect that strong demand for leisure travel in the Sun Belt to continue throughout this year. In other words, a lot of people driving, not flying as much, staying semi-local-ish. That's right. And I think especially on the heels of 24 months of higher inflation, uh, people are always looking to good value. In our business, 80% of our owners have fully paid for their vacations. So the value they're getting from getting to our resorts, whether it's drive to or fly to, it's not incremental spend for them. So the value's there and they're getting to resorts near their home, usually within 300 miles of where they reside. Yeah, have you seen the consumer, obviously coming out of COVID, COVID is a very different thing, although you're all over the United States and as we know, and as I know, because I I lived in Wisconsin, part of COVID, is that the way people acted was very differently. Without getting into that, now we're coming out of it, right, or out of it. 
Has anything changed permanently from that in the way people view travel, view spending, view their lives? Well, I think I think two components, the first of which I'd say is we saw a noticeable junk, jump in the average length of stay at our resorts post pandemic. It's 2024. I've already been looking at the length of stay bookings. They're all up. Uh, in fact, they're even up from 2023, which says to me this work from anywhere environment is here to stay. Uh, I know there's a lot of pressure to get people back to the office, but the reality on Main Street is people are getting away on a Thursday night and having a three day weekend and working from the kitchen table in one of our resorts on a Friday afternoon. I think the other component is this industry has always been viewed as a high discretionary purchase item. The reality is, is coming out of the pandemic, people said they're not going to give up their leisure travel. And as I mentioned earlier, with 80% of our people having owned, uh, fully paid for their purchase, the idea of this being a discretionary industry is quickly going away. Well, that's fascinating that people view it as as part of their new lives, because to your point, they had they knew once once they lost the ability to just have somewhere to go. I would imagine that that's going to stay with us for a long time, Mike, that 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 whole idea of things can be taken away in a week or two. I need a permanent destination. So if that is the case, who are you taking business from? Yeah, well, I. I think it's an interesting dynamic in the space. Um, you have to look at macroeconomic trends or macro leisure travel trends. And what are people asking for today? And I get the question all the time, are vacation rentals hurting our business? In fact, I think they're helping our business because for the longest time you were arguing against your vacationing with four people in a 300 square foot hotel room. Let's face it, when you're vacationing in a vacation ownership or vacation rental, having a 1,100-square-foot, two two-bedroom vacation definitely makes for a more, more enjoyable and less stressful vacation experience. So I think the macro trend is really, really leaning toward more space during your vacation. And in our case, the idea that you're doing it with a branded company, whether it's Wyndham, Margaritaville, Sports Illustrated, or now a core, our most uh, recent vacation ownership purchase, people want to travel with a name they can trust. When they put their key at the door, they know what's behind it. So for us, I think we're taking uh, business away from smaller accommodations that are unbranded, and in some cases, branded. There you go. Mike Brown, fascinating stuff in travel. Uh, have a successful 2024 and in the new year. We'll, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope, Mike. Thank you. That's our plan. Thank you very much for All having right, us. Be Brian. well. All right, on deck. Any of you out there remember Beyond Meat? Remember them? It was supposed to change what we eat. But with the stock in the meat grinder lately, they've got a new plan to rebuild the business. Kate Rogers spoke with the CEO and will join us to explain what's going on next. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. A spokesman for the Ukrainian Air Force pushed back today on a Reuters report that said Iran sent hundreds of powerful ballistic missiles to Russia. One U.S. official telling Reuters there had been evidence of active talks, but no indication that deliveries had taken place. Ukraine's top prosecutor said last week that ballistic missiles provided to Russia by North Korea were unreliable, missing most of their targets. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said that the extreme budget cuts proposed for this year will be canceled and a hiring freeze lifted in an interview with Eyewitness News in the city. Adams said the turnaround was due partly to cutbacks on funding for migrants and better than expected tax revenues. And about 15 million Toshiba laptop adapters were recalled today because of fire hazards. The company, now called Dynabook, said it received more than 600 reports of adapters overheating and even melting. The recall affects products dated from 2008 to 2012 that were either included with a laptop or purchased and sold separately. Brian, back to you, sir. Oh, Tyler, thank you very much. All right, on deck, what is the single biggest or one of the biggest roadblocks to mass EV adoption in America? Well, we're going to go around the world. We're going to go from zero to 60, look at the EV landscape in China, Europe, and right here in the Americas. That's next. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Certainly been a rough ride for EV stocks and investors as competition heats up and demand slows down. With China and Vietnam ready to come in hot, the global competition seems like it will heat up even more. Phil LeBeau with more on the global picture and what is happening in the trillion-dollar auto business now. Phil. It's a price war. That's the main problem that the EV market is facing right now. It is a global price war, Brian. And while EV sales are not falling, they're still growing. They're growing at a much slower pace. And yesterday we talked with Carlos Tavares, who is the CEO of Stellantis. They're about to launch a wave of EVs in 2024. And he says, look, you've got a number of things going on here. You need more affordable cars in the United States, really in all markets. The Chinese exports in EVs are hitting record levels. And there are range questions, charging station availability questions. You put all that together and it's a challenging EV market worldwide. How challenging? Let's start first in China with our Eunice Yoon. Phil, here in China, one out of every three cars sold is an EV. The biggest sellers are BYD, Tesla, and state-owned GAC. BYD had the five most popular battery and plug-in hybrids last year, with prices ranging from $16,000 to $30,000. Tesla is still on top on the high end, with its best seller, the Model Y, at $37,000 to $50,000. The ranges of the BYDs are around 250 to 375 miles. The Model Y in the 340 range. EVs appeal to China's wealthy, tech-savvy, and environmentally conscious, but increasingly to those on a budget after years of government subsidies promoted production and infrastructure. The government's ratio of EVs to charging points is around 2.5 to 1, with economically developed provinces and cities like Beijing and Shanghai most equipped. Now over to Arabile Gumede for a look at the EV landscape in Europe. The latest data shows that over 20% of new car registrations in Europe were electric vehicles, more than 2 million in one year. But the likes of VW, Renault, Stellantis, Mercedes and Volvo, all developing competitive models for this market. 
Bestsellers like the Fiat 500e, Volkswagen ID, and Tesla's Model Y and 3 retail at upwards of $40,000. And the race has heated up with competition for Tesla and Chinese car makers NIO and BYD, which see the block as a massive market for new factories in countries like Hungary and Norway. The longest-ranging EVs on sale in Europe this year will be able to travel over 350 miles in a single charge. This is important, as while France and the Netherlands boast a comprehensive charging network, the UK and Germany lag when it comes to that infrastructure. Now, some European countries have decided to pull the plug on EV subsidies. This adds some uncertainty to the year ahead and makes the development of a mass market model even more important to maintaining demand in Europe. Speaking of Europe, one of the hottest markets over in that continent when it comes to electric vehicles, Norway. No surprise, we've seen this happen for a number of years where EV adoption has really taken off. And now the question is, can they put enough chargers in place? Our digital team at CNBC spent a, a number of days over in Norway talking with EV owners as well as those who are responsible for building out the infrastructure there. Great documentary. You might want to check, on C, check out on CNBC.com. As for the South American market, Brian, you didn't hear us talk about it in that report there. It is a developing market when it comes to electric vehicles and really for all vehicles coming from China. And next week, we will be in Santiago, Chile, talking with the people in that market about the Chinese auto revolution and why one out of every three vehicles in Chile is brought in from China. It's a red hot market for China, a good example of what we're seeing around the world as China exports not just EVs, but all types of vehicles around the world trying to keep up with the needs of mass production that they have in that country. I didn't have Phil, Phil Lebeau going to San Diego, Chile on my bingo card, but that's going to be very cool. <laughs> and happy summer, by the way. It's T-shirt weather, I think. Yes. Phil, appreciate it. That's going to be fascinating. Good stuff. All right, safe travels. All right, and the EV trade is where we start in today's earnings exchange. Simpler Trading's Vice President of Options, Danielle Shea, here with the positions into the print. Danielle, welcome. Let's, let's start it off with uh, Lucid and Rivian. They're on deck to report their numbers. I won't call them earnings. There won't be any earnings. There'll be results. Now, Phil outlined some of the reasons why analysts and investors are looking for updates on things like manufacturing costs, how much they're losing per car, China competition. What are you looking at? So, Brian, when you look at these two stocks, I'm an options trader and, you know, they have really high implied volatility. So they do provide opportunity to sell premium based on which direction you're looking at these stocks. Now, you know, for me personally, I am long term bearish on both names, so I'm not owning the stock itself, but I like to trade them in the options market. Now, if you look at Rivian, this one's to me is the most interesting because you'll see that it's gapped up the last three quarters post earnings. So when you see something like that and you see see it placing numbers that, you know, they're not losing as much money as expected. What happens is you can get these short squeeze rallies after the fact. So even though the earnings aren't great, they might be better than expected. And with 15% short float, you may get a short squeeze rally. So if I can see the stock trade up above, you know, $17, $18 tomorrow, that's where I would take an entry uh, for a short squeeze play. But if you want to do something today, I think the best thing to do is simply just sell premium. 
Not, not as bad as expected is the new winning, apparently. Danielle Shea looking for a possible short squeeze. We'll find. By the way, we'll cover these numbers on last call tonight at 7 p.m. Also, Danielle, on this critical day for NVIDIA, we just talked about Intel earlier. Let's talk about a different name, Synopsys, up 50% in one year. It's made a lot of money for investors. Tonight, you got analysts looking on AI-driven growth strategies, things like restrictions on Chinese suppliers. It's worth pointing out, Danielle, that Synopsys' EPS has beaten in 20 of the past 20 quarters. I'm not a math major, but that seems like 100%. And you're a buyer. Exactly. And that's why I like to look for stocks exactly like this. I like to look for strong, long-term bullish trends, consistent EPS growth. And more importantly, I like to look for the reaction post earnings. With this stock, you've seen it trade higher 11 out of the last 12 quarters. So for me, that's incredibly consistent. With this one, we don't have weekly options that we can trade in it, but I do like it for a buy here because it's pulled back into support. I think ultimately the target is going to be around 600 and. 600 to $633. It has about a $42 expected move off of earnings. So if we do happen to get the off chance that it pulls back, uh, that would only give me a better spot to buy into this stock to trade it onwards up into $600 a share. Watching Synopsis, Lucid, and Rivian, Danielle Shea, Simple Trading. Daniel, we appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we got to go back to Phil Lebeau because we got a pretty big news alert on Boeing. Phil. Brian, take a look at shares of Boeing, the company announcing a leadership shakeup when it comes to its commercial airplanes division. And we're not going to go through all of the new positions and all of the executives who have been promoted into various positions. But there are two moves that are going to get a lot of attention. First of all, Ed Clark, who is the vice president of 737 MAX and the Renton facility where the MAX is built. He's been with the company for 18 years. He is leaving Boeing. So the person who was in charge of the MAX program is leaving Boeing. Also, Boeing promoting Elizabeth Lund, a longtime executive within the company. She will now be put into a new position, which is the vice president of BCA Quality, Boeing Commercial Airplanes Quality. Big move here by Boeing saying we need to focus even more than where we already are on t- in terms of quality coming off of the incident with the Alaska Air, uh, Airlines plane and the door plug that was ripped off in mid-flight. So again, two changes in the leadership that we are noting here from Boeing, but there are a number of uh, people moving into new positions within Boeing commercial airplanes. Brian? Big move. Not going to ask you to speculate, but I've got to imagine, uh, however Mr. Clark left, there was a tremendous amount of pressure on him and his team. Well, I'm sure he's faced a, 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 immense pressure ever since this incident. Um, that, that, that's an understatement. Um, and they're just leaving it at Ed Clark is leaving Boeing after 18 years of service. They thank him for his service. And now they move into a new direction. That's it. We'll, sure we'll get more throughout the day. Uh, your day just got busier. Phil above. Thank you. All right, coming up. Call it a Beyond Meat makeover. We've got the details on what the company just announced and whether it's enough to bring customers back and the stock back to life. Kay Rogers, up with that next. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. It was the company that was supposed to change the way we look at and eat meat. But Beyond Meat has struggled to find a consistent customer base and investors have suffered with it. But today, Beyond Meat is rolling out a new, healthier version of its Beyond Burger. 
So will it help? Kate Rogers spoke exclusively with the company CEO and joins us now with more. Kate. Hey there, Brian. The new burger is made with avocado oil. It has 20% less sodium, 60% less saturated fat than previous iterations, along with a shorter ingredient list. It will be sold in retail to start this spring, but CEO Ethan Brown said he believes consumers will also want to see it in restaurants in the future. The company's worked with Stanford University School of Medicine, along with registered dietitians, as it has retooled this product. Brown also telling CNBC he believes that this health message will resonate resonate rather with consumers. Take a listen. I think you have seen over the last several years a consolidation in the industry as many new entrants came in uh, and the, the category contracted and they exited. And so today there really is quite an open playing field where we can bring new innovation in and communicate directly with the consumer with less noise. And in this case, we're putting a lot of energy into delivering the message to the consumer that they can take significant steps toward uh, their health and toward the health of the planet by consuming Beyond Meat. Now, it could be an uphill battle. Plant-based meat products had a real boom, if you remember, in grocery during the pandemic. But data from Circana show sales of alternative meat products are down over 30 percent as the end of January on a year-over-year basis. Beyond's U.S. retail net revenues also fell more than 30 percent in the third quarter from a year prior due to weak category demand, Brown said. Its stock has also been challenged. It's down nearly 100 percent in the last three years. It was higher, though, Brian, on the news today. Back over to you. What about pricing? How, how does, Kate, this compare to pricing on, you know, meat, meat? <laughs> it's so interesting, Brian. I took a look right before coming to air because I wanted to check out target prices uh, out here in San Francisco. And a pound of Beyond was actually right on par with a pound of traditional ground beef at about six ninety nine per pound. Now, I did ask Brown about that yesterday because they are looking to reach price parity with traditional animal proteins in the future. This one's going to be more premium priced to start. But as the company and as the industry, he says, continues to scale, you will see those prices come down. But this one won't be on par with a, a traditional meat product to begin. Does anybody come back when you talk to them, just to the taste, I know people that love it. Mm-hmm. I want to be clear. I found it to be extremely s- salty, like just mm. sort of, is it, you know, we talk a lot about all these other things, but does, does, does anybody kind of just whisper in your ear, Kate, like got to make it taste a little better? You know, I think that that's such a personal uh, choice, it is. right? And, and as people you said, like you, you beets. think it's- Some people like beets. I think those people are terrible human beings, right? A beet should hey. never, if a beet's <laughs> in the building, I'll leave the building. So taste is individual, but I think it totally a lot of is. it's if it tastes great, it will sell. And, and he is uh, very bullish on the taste of this new product in particular. Uh, and as mentioned earlier, it does have a lower sodium count. So you may also like it, Brian. That's it. And by the way, I got to apologize to the beet farmers out there. And the good news <laughs> about beets being awful is that at least they're not olives, which are even worse than beets, if that's possible. Kate Rogers, appreciate it. Thank Got to you. agree with you there. Thank See? you. <laughs> I, I knew we were simpatico on that. All right. Mm-hmm. It is almost that time. No, not NVIDIA's earnings. Those are tonight. It's the Fed minutes set to roll out at the top of the hour. What can we expect from them and the market reaction? Joining us now is Alan Boomer. He is chief investment officer at Momentum Advice. Hard to believe you get the Fed minutes and NVIDIA earnings and beat hatred on the same day. Alan, we'll stick to the two of the previous three. What are you expecting to hear from the Federal Reserve? Hopefully we get another Christmas or Hanukkah today. You know, it's, it's a big day, lots of news. Um, you know, the market is really adjusting to what could really happen with the Fed. 
as we went into this year, there was an expectation for as many as four to six rate cuts. I think the Fed fund futures market is now pricing in three, maybe four. And now we're hearing chatter that there's some folks that think maybe we get none this year, right? And and so I think folks are really looking towards the language to figure out what is going to actually happen and what would be a good a good outcome. I mean, the market really wants cuts, but we also got to keep in mind that when there's a cut, it's also because the economy's weakening. And do you want that as well? Yeah, it's amazing how things flipped. It was like, we're not going to do anything, then they're going to cut. Now we, they may not do anything again. Some people are actually talking about raises again. I, I guess, it's, Alan, it's going to all come down to February's numbers. Anyway, any way to play it, if we don't know what the Fed's going to do, any place you'd like to invest now, regardless of what the Fed does? Sure. I mean, I always have my value hat on, right? So the first thing that I'd be thinking about is what are some stocks that just have not participated in the rally um, you know, for example, like last year was really all about tech and, and the communication services stocks. But there were a bunch of stocks that were, you know, very worth our, our attention that didn't get them. Uh, stocks like like Target Corporation and Chevron. These are companies that are trading at really, really low valuations, did not perform very well in the past year. I, I think Target in particular will do well if the Fed does cut rates or in an environment where you know the, the consumer just continues to have cash in the bank, which it does, and you know just the, the the return to sort of a normal environment for the consumer. Yeah, you, you, I just wonder, Alan, what's normal mean anymore? <laughs> right when it comes to the consumer, what does normal mean to you? Listen, I think normal is an environment where you you can go to the grocery store and expect to pay what you paid last week. Right. We, we had a year or 18 months where, you know, prices were just rising through the roof. I think the expectation moving forward is that inflation should be a lot more in control. And in particular, I think we'll, we'll be having to live with some of the service price inflation. But hopefully, you know, some things will start to come down. I mean, I, I bought a car recently and I'll tell you, I, I'm glad I didn't have to pay over MSRP. Uh, and that's an, another reason why I look at a company like Ally Financial. They're real big in sort of auto leasing and, you know, that sort of space. And, you know, I, I do think in an environment where rates are high, we can live as long as we don't have, you know, another uh, big outbreak of inflation. And that's the worry. And I think that's going to be the February numbers, or Alan, or, you know, the January kind of spooked everybody a little bit. And I'm thinking if we get February coming in hot, it puts the Fed back in play, doesn't it? I mean, it's all going to come down to the February CPI. It's hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, the, the soft landing environment really, it, 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 you know, what, what's needed for that is GDP growth to slow a little and for inflation to continue to grind lower. The hard landing scenario would have a material drop off in, in, in GDP growth, a material uptick in unemployment and a big jump in, in inflation. And I think that's the worry. Uh, you know, from our perspective, I think we're a bit more optimistic. We, we don't think we're headed towards a hard landing. We do think the soft landing is still possible. It's just that the soft landing may be so soft that the Fed can't <laughs> cut rates. And so maybe we don't get a ton of rate cuts. Well, I'm going to coin the waterbed landing. Like you just, you just kind of, you don't even let, you just kind of mold in, if you will. Quickly, Alan, Nvidia earnings tonight—they got to be huge for you and your clients, even if they're not invested Absolutely. in the stock. 
Absolutely. I mean, for one, you've got to figure, you know, if the Magnificent Seven continue to be magnificent and NVIDIA is kind of the last to report of the group, if they can come out at $5.02 a share the way analysts expect, we will have seen a group of stocks that's really grown their earnings by about 58% in the last year, which is just incredible. NVIDIA itself is sort of, you know, it's, it's an earnings machine, but it's also indicative of the power of AI. And we think that generative AI can be as big as the internet in the future. And these NVIDIA earnings are just yeah, very, big very as important the for the market. The internet, wow. Absolutely. Alan, we gotta leave it there. We got the numbers coming out. We'll let you get to them, Alan Boomer. Thank you very much. That does it for us. I'll be back at seven o'clock tonight. Power Lunch with the Fed Minutes on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... ...trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own... ...leave the kids with grandma... ...trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Yours. 